This is the story of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, kingdom builder, healer. He is the King of glory. He is the resurrecting Savior. They expected a conqueror, but instead they got a servant, crucified and lifted high. And the marks on his hands left us marked for salvation. So my name is Chris Majeski. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to share with you from God's Word this morning as we continue on in our Servant King uh, series. We're working our way through the Gospel of Mark, looking at the life of Jesus, looking at how he was a servant king. Uh, and so excited about this series. I'm excited about, uh, I love the Gospel of Mark, and excited about the chance to really look closely at the life of Jesus together. Um, as we get started, I wanted to share with you uh, a story um, I want to share with you a story of, of something that, rec- two different stories that happened to me recently. About a week ago, a little over a week ago, uh, my wife and I were, were, were uh, getting some financial documents in order. We've been doing the Financial Peace University class here. It's been good, really good stuff for us. But uh, we were looking at our van. We have a, a minivan. We we're looking at when we're going to pay that thing off. We're really close. And so we were looking up that information. She was trying to get into the account online, and uh, she was on the phone with, with the bank, and, and, and uh, she said that uh, the, the van's a, a, a 2013. And I was standing there, I was like, no, no, it's 2012. She said, I, I think it's a 2013. I was like, fine, but it's a 2012. Uh, it wasn't my finer moment there, right? But, uh, so, so she says it's 2013. I said, no, it's 2012. And, and so she, uh, I said, well, we'll just, we'll just deal with this later, right? We'll go, I'll go get the papers. So I went and got the papers from the van, got out of the glove box and brought it in and it's a 2013. <laughs> I began to tell her, I could have sworn it was a 2012. I began to tell her stories about when we bought it and, and how it's a 2012. This is why it's a 2012. It's not a 20. I was so convinced. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had an experience like that, maybe, where you were convinced it was one way and it was actually a different way. Uh, that's very unusual for me. I rarely have those moments, but uh, this was just a rare situation. But anyway, but that, that's what happened. And it reminded me that perception is not always reality. Perception is not always reality. The way we think of things, we may have it built up in our mind that it's one way, but it might actually be very different. And are we open to that, considering that this morning, considering that our perception is not always reality? Just last night, I had a, uh, another situation uh, that reminded me of this, and, and that was with my son, Josiah. He's in second grade. Uh, and and we, have a, we have a rule in our home that if you don't eat your dinner, there's nothing else the rest of the night, nothing else to eat the rest of the night. And so, uh, so Josiah didn't want to eat his dinner last night. And so about an hour later, uh, as I'm getting uh, the, the baby ready for bed, uh, we've got a, 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 a one in a 15-month-old, and so getting him ready, and, and Josiah came in uh, and, and said, Dad, I, I have, want to say something, but I'm afraid I'm going to be in trouble. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, do you want to say something to me anyway then? And do you want, you want to say something? And he said, yeah, uh, I, I have a question. Like, okay, what's your question, bud? He's like, I'm hungry. He said, well, well, that's a statement, not a question. So do you have a question? And, and he said, can I have something to eat? And, and, and I, I told him, reminded him of the rule, right? I reminded him of, uh, if you don't eat your dinner, then there's nothing else to eat the rest of the night. He said, but I'm willing to warm up your dinner for you if you'd like to have something to eat. And he said, no, he didn't want to eat that. <laughs> he, was, he wasn't willing to that. But the reason I tell that story with Josiah is he was afraid to tell me, right? And, and, and unfortunately, he has history for that. He was told me he was afraid he was going to be in trouble. He was afraid I was going to yell at him. Fortunately, he has history of that. I've done that in the past. That's happened. Uh, not in, in, in my better moments. But this time I didn't. This time I didn't. We had meatloaf for dinner. 
As a kid, I didn't want to eat meatloaf. I get that. I had compassion for that situation he was in, right? And he came to me, and he was afraid to share with me what was going on. And his fear might have kept him from talking to me. He might have never brought that to me because he was afraid of being in trouble, but he did, and I, 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 I honored him for that. I told him I was proud of him for coming to me and talking to me, and I actually got down on one knee and, and, and you know, looked into his eyes and, 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 and reminded him of the, the rules that we have and, and told him, I understand, bud, that you don't like meatloaf, but, but this is the rule, and this is the way it needs to be. And so, uh, and so I, I connected with him. His fear, his perception of me as going to be angry at him might have kept him from having that moment with me where we could connect and we could, we, could, we could talk about real stuff. But he didn't. He moved through his fear. His perception wasn't actually the reality. The reality was, I love you and I'm ready to connect with you, son, and, and I want to talk to you about this. doesn't mean that I'm going to flex on the rule. The rule is still the rule, right? But I was, met him with compassion, right? Knelt down and had that conversation. Can you relate to that? Maybe a situation with your own kids? Where you had a similar experience where they were afraid to tell you something or they thought it was going to be some way and then it was something totally different? Or maybe in your own life, maybe a time where you believed that you would be in trouble if someone knew what was really going on or if, someone, if you were really honest that you would end up being in trouble. Maybe you can relate to that. I think we can look around our world and see examples of this over and over again. There's stories of people who are in key positions of leadership, whether it's in church or politics or in the schools and things like that. They're in key positions of leadership, and they mess it up big time. They make some decision that just ends their career, messes up their life. Uh, they, they, they misuse their authority, and they end up in a big mess and paying drastic consequences for it. And, and in these situations, I often wonder, where did the problem start? It wasn't that, I don't believe one day they woke up and said, hey, I'm going to make this decision that's going to end my career or screw up my life major. I don't think they woke up one day and made a a really bad decision. I believe that it started way back earlier and there were small decisions that were made, small compromises that were made, and then bigger ones, and then bigger ones. And so they made a poor choice, they made a bad decision, something they disagreed with, maybe even something they knew was wrong, and they didn't actually talk about it with anybody else, they just kept it hidden. And then they did bigger ones and bigger ones. And then they ended up in a situation where they, they don't even recognize their behavior anymore. Maybe they don't even, they're in a place that they never intended to be. And as I look at these situations, I, I think there were so many exit points. There were so many off-ramps. You were on a highway going a direction you didn't want to go, and you could have gotten off that highway. I believe, I suspect, that in those moments, they recognized that there were off-ramps, but the risk of being honest the perception that I'll be in trouble, the risk of being honest was too great for them to overcome the, the perception that I might be in trouble. But perception isn't always reality. And I think in a lot of these situations, they could have been prevented. They could have been prevented if they would have taken an exit ramp and opened up and were honest. And do you realize that, that we often do this perception, for substituting perception for reality? We do this often in our spiritual lives. We apply this to God. That there's things that we believe about God that we didn't learn from Scripture. We learned them from somewhere else in life. Or we picked them up along the way, some kind of idea that, that, that doesn't hold up against the truth of Scripture. It's our perception. It's built up. And it's actually a really powerful perception, a really powerful story. We believe it's this way. But the reality is it could be very different. I think this is a key part of our spiritual growth, is learning, to, learning through these, moving through these. And so we, we take these ideas that we have, that we match them up against Scripture, and we see that, you know, God is actually very different than that. And we embrace the truth. We move away from that perception and we move towards the truth about God. 
And one of the things I love about doing this series through the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus does this for us. Jesus, he helps us to move away from those, those perceptions that we have to the truth. He shows us what God is like. He's God in flesh. And so he, he appeared on earth and displays for all of us what God is like. And so looking at Jesus is a way that we can dispel some of these misperceptions that we have, some of these ideas that maybe actually are pretty strong and pretty, holding a pretty good grip on us. And so as we look at uh, Mark chapter 1, we're going to look at uh, uh, some, some verses here, the early part of Jesus' ministry. So Dave got us started in a series talking about Jesus being the servant king and looking at the beginning of his ministry. This is where Jesus' ministry really starts to, to accelerate here in these verses that we're looking at. Mark 1, verses 14 through 15. Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee, where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. And so these two verses here, the John that it references, John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was uh, on the scene before Jesus, preparing the way for Jesus. And his message was, repent and believe the Messiah is coming. Prepare yourselves because the Messiah is coming. Now John is arrested and and, and Jesus uh, uh, steps into the spotlight more and his ministry begins to accelerate. And his message is, repent of your sins and, and, uh, and, 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 and believe the good news. And you see the word good news is used twice here in verse 14, in the end of 14 and the end of 15, and it's capitalized, good news. And we often, uh, we often uh, see that throughout Scripture, and, and we're aware, that if you've been in the church, you may be aware that that's the word gospel, when it's capitalized good news, it's the word gospel. And, and we often have ideas of what gospel means. We have our ideas that we, we place on that. I want to help you understand what the original hearers would have understood by that word gospel that's being used. It's actually not a religious word. It's a word that's used from everyday life that, that Jesus used and that, that the, the New Testament writers used to help understand that what, Jesus, what, what Jesus is talking about, to help understand kind of the core of the message of Christianity. And so gospel actually means news that brings joy. You may have heard it means good news, right? That's how it's translated there, good news. But really, it's the idea of news that brings joy. That's tied up in that idea. But more specifically, news that brings joy. It was used of an announcement of something that happened in history. And so it was used for, like, military victories or uh, so, so announced, like, they, they, they win this battle uh, and, and they come and announce to the people, hey, we, we, have, we have defeated the enemy. You are now free. That's gospel. That's good news to them. It's an announcement that brings great joy. You are free. Because we've, we've done this, this thing for you, right? And so Jesus is using this term to describe his message that he has. The good news of God. This announcement. Something that has happened in history that is meaningful for the rest of your life. That has impact for your life and how it's lived. And so it was used in political situations. It was used in military situations. That kind of thing. And it's used here by Jesus and the gospel writers to talk about the essence of Christianity. The gospel, this is from Tim Keller in his book, uh, The King's Cross. He has some great stuff on this, and he says this. The gospel is that God connects to you, not on the basis of what you've done or haven't done, but God connects to you on the basis of what Jesus has done in history for us. And he goes on to talk about this. It's not about what we've done or haven't done. It's about what Jesus has done, and that's the gospel. That's the good news that's announced, this thing that has been done for us on our behalf. And he goes on to talk about, Keller goes on to talk about um, this idea of good news and how it's different from advice. We often, when we think of one of the the ideas we may overlay on gospel when you say the word gospel, is advice, how we should live, the things you need to do, the steps you need to take to be right with God, right? 
And, and, and there certainly is advice, and there certainly is information in the New Testament about, about the way we should live our lives. God wants, has, has plans for us and ways that life goes best when we follow his, his instructions, right? But gospel is good news. It's an announcement of something that's happened. Advice, that's a suggestion of what you should do. Now, there's a place for advice. We all need input from people from time to time to say, hey, what do you think I should do here? What, what are your suggestions about how I should approach this situation? Advice can be a good thing. But advice doesn't bring joy. Advice is like, okay, I've got something to do now. I've got work to do. It actually could be burdensome in some situations. Maybe you've received advice that ended up kind of weighing you down. Felt like, well, now I've got a bunch of stuff I need to do to take care of this. Now I know what I need to do, and there's work set before me. Jesus doesn't come with advice. He comes with good news. He is preaching via, he is announcing the good thing that has happened, that's changed, that can change their lives. And so Jesus is preaching this, and he's different from the, the teachers of his day. This is, differentiates him from all the other teachers of his day because they are giving advice. They are telling people the things that they need to do to be right with God. They're laying these burdens on people, weighing them down. And Jesus says, I've got a different way for you. It's good news. And so he begins to share this good news all through, it says, Galilee all through the area of Galilee. And so I want to give us a, a, a picture of that. Um, a lot of times, if you're like me, I read that, and I'm like, oh yeah, I know that word Galilee. That's in the Bible. That's a place. And I don't really know what that is, right? And so to help us understand, especially as we're, we're reading, uh, learn about the life of Jesus through this series, I want to give us a kind of a, a, a mental picture of this, right? So, so here we've got Galilee, and we've got the Sea of Galilee. This is where Jesus walked on water. This is where his disciples were fishing when he calls them. Actually, that happens in, in Mark chapter 1 here. He calls uh, Peter and, and, and Andrew and James and John, and they were fishing on the Sea of Galilee. You can see on the, the northwest corner there of uh, the Sea of Galilee is the city of Capernaum. That becomes, that's where, that's where Peter, Andrew, James, and John are from. They were fishing there. And Capernaum becomes kind of Jesus' home base for the, the beginning of his ministry. And so he travels throughout Galilee, but Capernaum is home. It's the place he keeps coming back to. And so, in fact, in Mark chapter 2, it says, when Jesus returned to Capernaum, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Right? So this becomes kind of, Capernaum becomes kind of home base. And you can also see in here, we've got Nazareth, as you know, the, the childhood home of Jesus. And then also, just a, just a little bit northeast of that is, is Cana. And that's where his first miracle was performed. He turned water into wine at the wedding celebration. The first public start of his ministry that moment. And so we've got a few places where Jesus, Jesus uh, you can see a few places there, hopefully have an idea. Now we've got the Jordan River that runs uh, out, of, out of the Sea of Galilee. Let's go to the bigger picture here of all of uh, Israel, right? And so we've got uh, Capernaum way up there towards the top of the map, and then we've got Jerusalem. You can see the Jordan River runs down and, and into uh, uh, the, other, the other lake there. And so we've got Jerusalem, you've got Bethlehem uh, where he was born, that kind of thing, all right? But now see the overlay there? That's the, that's the shape of New Jersey. That's the state of New Jersey. So for perspective, all of Jesus' life, mo- uh, almost all of Jesus' life, he, he was in Egypt early, early on, but most of Jesus' life and ministry takes place in, in the, the size of New Jersey, walking around with his disciples, teaching and, and doing these things. And so this is the perspective of where he's at, what's going on. You can see some of the stuff. Early ministry up in Galilee, and then he moves to Jerusalem for the end of his life, all right, with, with the disciples. They move there towards the end. All right, so we've got Jesus and his disciples. They're, 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 he's he's uh, called his disciples. Uh, they're following him. He's going to these synagogues and he's teaching, and people are amazed at his teaching. He teaches like, unlike they've ever heard before. It says this is real authority. He teaches with real authority. And he begins casting out demons, and people are like, wow, this is, this is crazy. He not only has this, this, this authority over scripture, with the scripture and understanding of the scripture, he also has power over demons. 
And, and he begins to heal people, people and they see the, the, that he has the, the, the power to heal our, our physical bodies and, and be at work in the physical world around us. And so his ministry really starts to take off. Like, people are flocking from everywhere to see this guy and, and to meet this guy and to, and to, to have them, him uh, yeah, perform miracles for them. And so what I want to focus in on is this, the, towards the end of the chapter in Mark chapter 1, one specific story of a, of, of a time here where, where he heals someone. And so we'll look at Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, where he heals a man with leprosy. So let's read in verse 40. A man with leprosy came and knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean, he said. So we've got this man with leprosy. He comes to Jesus before Jesus. They're on their way. They're, they're walking, you know, going to different cities and sharing, about, sharing the good news and that. And, he, and, and uh, this man approaches him on the road and kneels before him and begs, if you're willing, you can make me clean, he says. So understanding this man's condition, understanding leprosy, this may be leprosy as we think of it today. It might have been just some, some, skin, some skin disease or skin disorder. And, that, that, and like there was uh, kind of a larger, cl- leprosy in, in biblical times was this a very large classification of any kind of like skin disorder, skin disease. But what's clear is this man has a serious condition uh, that's considered contagious and, can, and makes him considered unclean and untouchable. He's not allowed to be in the city. In fact, the fact that he even approaches Jesus, he's breaking a whole bunch of rules. We're going to see here in just a minute some of the strict rules they had for, uh, for people with leprosy. So he is an outcast. He is away from the rest of society, not allowed to be near the rest of society. And so he makes a bold move to approach Jesus, to come this close to Jesus, and to ask this of him. So let's look at Leviticus 13, verses 45 through 46, some instructions that were given about how lepr- people with leprosy were to be treated. Those who suffer from a, serious, from a serious skin disease must tear their clothing and leave their hair uncombed. They must cover their mouth and call out, unclean, unclean. As long as the serious disease lasts, they will be ceremonially unclean. They will live in isolation in their place outside the camp. Now, this may seem harsh, but understand we're dealing with, uh, with very different living conditions and that kind of thing and, and, and contagious disease and they're, they're worried about that spreading as this was a way of, of protecting the rest of the people, right? And so, uh, so, so the, these, these lepers, if they had this skin disease, the priest would, announce, would, would uh, label them as unclean. And that meant spiritually unclean and physically unclean. They were not to be around other people. And so much so that they had to demonstrate that by wearing torn clothes and messed up hair. And, and they had to cover their mouths so they wouldn't breathe on people. And they had to yell. They had to announce that they were unclean. So they've been labeled this and they have to own that and tell other people, this is what's true of me. I'm unclean. Don't touch me. Don't come near me. You don't want this. This is bad news. I'm bad news. So clearly this guy is in a bad situation. It's because they're in a very bad situation. And, and he's living, the reason he approaches Jesus while he's on the road is because he wasn't allowed in the city. He was not allowed there. So, so consider the isolation he had socially as he had, was ripped from his family and friends and had to be outside of the city. Curing leprosy was considered more difficult than raising the dead. It was considered something that was like a death sentence, essentially. You lived outside in this camp until either something miraculous happened and your skin disease cleared up or you died. I mean, this was a bad situation for this guy. And so he's outside of the city this way, living this way. We don't know for how long, but, but his outlook is pretty hopeless. It's pretty bad. And, and it was also considered that only God could cure leprosy. And so I'm wondering here, as we see this man, how is it 
that he believes Jesus can do this. Like, this is the very start of Jesus' ministry. And, and, and the priests can't fix this. They could just tell him, you're unclean, you got to get out of the city, right? They can't do that. They can't fix it. They're the ones who can announce it, can allow him back in. If it clears up, he goes and does a sacrifice, and they say, they, they check, uh, inspect, and they say, you're clean. You can come back in. But they have no power to fix it. No one does. Only God does. And yet he falls before Jesus, and he says, you can make me clean if you're willing. You can make me clean. He believes something about Jesus. He believes that Jesus is different from everybody else. And where does that come from? I believe he would have heard the stories of Jesus. Just earlier in Mark, we have some stories of Jesus and what's happening here. So Mark chapter 1, 27 and 28, I believe he would have heard this story. And it says this, Amazement gripped the audience, and they began to discuss what had happened. What sort of new teaching is this, they asked excitedly. It has such authority. Even, even evil spirits obey his orders. The news about Jesus spread quickly throughout the entire region of Galilee. So this story, Jesus is in the synagogue teaching, and they're amazed at his teaching, as I've, as I've shared, that they were blown away at this, this authority that he taught with. And then this man with, a, de- a, demon possess- a, man with a, a demon, who was possessed by a demon, stood up and began to shout at Jesus, and Jesus shut him down and cast the demon out of him right there in front of everybody. And it, they were like, whoa, we were already impressed with the spiritual authority he had. Now, look at this, even demons obey him, right? And so they, they see here, we, we see here in this story, and this story that's circulated through all of, all of Galilee tells us that Jesus has authority over the spiritual world. This man would have heard that Jesus is not like the other teachers and not like the priests, that he has real authority in the spiritual world. That would have given him hope for something for himself, something different from what he's already gotten. And then Mark, just the verses right after that, we see another story that he likely would have heard as well. And that's Mark 1, 29 through 31. After Jesus left the synagogue with James and John, they went to Simon and Andrew's home. Now Simon's mother-in-law was sick in bed with a high fever. They told Jesus about her right away. So he went to her bedside, took her by the hand, and helped her sit up. Then the fever left her, and she prepared a meal for them. So they leave the synagogue, they go to Peter's house, and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. And they tell her, they tell Jesus about it, and Jesus goes to her, and she's, she's got a very high fever. This is a very serious situation, and, and he, uh, he helps her, he takes her by the hand, helps her up, and she's immediately healed. And then they have this weird, it has this weird statement, then she prepared a meal for them. That's um, kind of an odd statement, right? But the point here, the point here is that she was so, she was healed, like completely healed, and she got up and resumed normal duties that she would have done with guests in the home. She has guests in the home. She would have been up preparing a meal and, do, and taking care of them. And so Jesus heals her. It takes so drastic, just instantly, so drastically, that she's up back in normal action doing the normal duties she would have done. And so this story, I believe, he, we, we see here that Jesus, uh, uh, that Jesus yeah, has authority over the physical world. So the spiritual world, right? The, the demons and, and the, the teachings and that. But now he can even heal our physical bodies. He has authority over the physical world. And so this leper would have had hope here that Jesus could offer him a different result than what he's gotten in the past. He knows Jesus is different. He believes Jesus can heal him. His only question is whether or not Jesus is going to be willing to do it for him. Whether or not Jesus is going to be willing to heal him. That's why he kneels and says, if you're willing, you can make me whole. You can heal me. See, this man would have heard these stories, but the question remains, does that fit for me? Does he love me the same that he loves others? Does he have the same compassion and sympathy for me that he has for others? Or am I different? And so he falls before Jesus, kneeling, and he begs him, and he says, if you're willing, you can help me. 
And Jesus' response in verse 41, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing, he said, be healed. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. This is something that was unheard of. This man was untouchable. If someone touched him, they would be unclean. They might get this disease. But Jesus was moved with compassion. And that that word there, the the phrase there, it's talking about being moved in his inner being is the literal translation. Moved in his inner being. At his core, he was moved. And that word is used, that phrase is used throughout the entire New Testament about Jesus. We have all these different interactions where that's true of him. That He's moved to his inner being. And it's true in one, it's used in one situation of a mother who has lost her son. He happens upon a funeral and there's a mother who has lost her only son. And he's, they're carrying the casket and the boy's, boy's in there and the mother is overcome with grief. And Jesus, it says, is overwhelmed with compassion. And he says to the mother, it's the same phrase, moved with compassion, overwhelmed with compassion. And he says, don't cry. And then he raises the boy from the dead and hands him back to his mother. Moved with compassion. He sees us as we are and meets us with compassion, just as he does with this leper. And I, I, I see here, I think it's so for us to see this because I think it helps us understand that this is what Jesus does. This is what he does with us. He sees us in our mess. He's not afraid of our mess. Jesus is not afraid of our mess. He enters into it with us. And he could have, think of his leper, he could have healed him by words first and then touched him when he was clean and he wasn't messy anymore, but he doesn't do it in that order. And I think it's so significant that he doesn't. I think it's profound for us that he doesn't. Because what he does is reaches out and touches this man in his mess, communicating to us that we don't have to clean ourselves up before we come to Jesus. That he loves us even still in those moments and that he's willing to enter it with us and to bring healing in those very moments. He's compassionate and he's available to all, even in our most unlovable moments. And so this man, Jesus reaches out and touches him and says, be healed. And so let's look at the rest of the story in Mark 1, 42 through 45. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and the man was healed. Then Jesus sent him on his way with a stern warning. Don't tell anyone about this. Instead, go to the priest and let him examine you. Take along the offering required in the law of Moses for those who have been healed of leprosy. This will be a public testimony that you have been cleansed. But the man went and spread the word, proclaiming to everyone what had happened. As a result, large crowds soon surrounded Jesus, and he couldn't publicly enter a town anywhere. He had to stay out in the secluded places. But people from everywhere kept coming to him. So Jesus heals this man. He is healed completely. It's all done. He's totally healed, right? But Jesus tells him, go and offer the sacrifice at the temple that's needed. Don't tell everybody about this. And we could talk a lot about that. I'll give you a, a, just a quick summary statement of why Jesus tells him not to. I believe it's because Jesus understands as the cat gets out of the bag that Jesus can do these kind of miracles, the crowds form and it hinders his real mission of sharing the good news. People come because they want to be healed rather than they hear the good news of the gospel and the announcement that God has for them of what he's doing for them and what, he's, what he is doing for them in Jesus. And so healing people is a part of the good news, right? But it's people coming, the crowd coming, and it's, and it's keeping him from being able to really do the real mission that he set, set, set out to do. And so he tells this man not to do it. The man doesn't listen, and, and he goes and tells everybody, and, and I, I, I can't blame him. I mean, this is a huge deal, right? This is a big thing. And he wants people to know how great Jesus is. And he does that. And, and, and people understand how great he is. And it's so big that Jesus can't even get into towns. He's mobbed by people and he's held back from even getting in to the city. But yet, 
it doesn't stop people from coming to him. He stays out in secluded places, and they still keep coming to him. They still keep finding him. And so Jesus heals completely. We see this man in this moment. He is healed physically, spiritually, and socially. Physically, his body is plagued by this disease, and it was cured in his encounter with Jesus. Spiritually, he would have been kept from the temple and from the synagogue. He would have been, had barriers between, how, between him and, and how he wanted to engage with his, his, his faith and, and worship God. There's spiritual problems here. He also was considered spiritually unclean. And so there's hindrances there to his spiritual life. And that's all taken away in this moment with Jesus. And then we see socially how he's healed. He was excluded, ripped away from family and friends. And in his encounter with Jesus, in this healing, he is being able to go back into community, back into family. His encounter with Jesus changed the entire trajectory of his life. Entire trajectory of his life. Not just a physical thing, spiritually and socially. And that's a picture of us, of what happens when we truly encounter Jesus, is that it changes the trajectory of our life. It's not a surface-level behavior-oriented thing. It's not just uh, certain, certain behaviors that we don't do or do. It changes the entire trajectory of our life because Jesus changes everything. And so as we look at this story of this leper, do you see yourself in him, in this character? I can see myself. I can see myself. This man was completely helpless about his situation. There was nothing he could do to change it. There's nothing he could do to make himself acceptable. There's nothing he could do to, to be entered back into society. He had no hope to fix it on his own. It was only through an intervention from God that that could be changed. And that's the spiritual condition we're all in. There's no hope for us to change our spiritual condition. It requires an intervention from God. And the good news, the announcement that brings joy, is that God's making that available to all of us and saying, I'm here and available to you. I've done this for you. I'm here to intervene on your behalf and bring you back into relationship with me to restore you. This is an invitation that's available to all. So if you're here and you haven't accepted that invitation, today can be that day. Would love to talk with you after the service about that. And if you're here and you've been following Christ for a while, you've received that that invitation of salvation, of, of new life in Christ, let's not forget that the way that we're saved is how we continue to live our spiritual life. That it was only by the hope of Christ that we could be restored to relationship with God. And it's only by Christ that our healing can continue. He is our only hope. This man was considered unlovable. This man was considered unacceptable and cast out of society. I believe each one of us have parts of ourselves that we think are unlovable. Parts of ourselves that need the healing touch of Jesus. Parts of ourselves that, need to bring, that we need to bring to God. But if we consider them unlovable, if we consider them unacceptable, we'll never do that. So the big point today is bring the unlovable parts of you to Jesus so that he can transform them. Bring the unlovable parts of you to Jesus. Those areas that are ugly, that are messy. Those areas that we think, no way, he wouldn't wouldn't accept this. He wouldn't love me. Or I got to get this figured out myself. I have to clean it up myself and then I'll go to him. Jesus isn't standing over us like an angry father ready to discipline us. Jesus is ready to kneel down, look at us in the eye, and with compassion say, I love you still. I love you still. Let me heal you. Let me bring the healing that you've been longing for and needing. A.W. Tozer, uh, in in the book, The, The Root of the Righteous, says this. 
We please him, being God, we please him most, not by frantically trying to make ourselves good, but by throwing ourselves into his arms with all our imperfections and believing that he understands everything and loves us still. We please God most, not by frantically trying to make ourselves good, but instead by throwing ourselves into his arms with our imperfections and believing that he understands everything and he loves us still. That's good news. That's news that we desperately need to hear. And we need to hear it once. We need to hear it at the beginning of our faith journey as we come to faith in Christ. And we need to hear it on a daily basis that God welcomes us, all of us, and loves us still. And that's a world that our truth desperately needs. That's a truth that our world desperately needs to hear. Do you know people that need to know that? That need to know that God loves them? Do you know people that, that that would change their life if they really understood that God loves them, deeply loves them, and has compassion on them? That he's not standing over ready to judge them, but he's ready to welcome them with compassion. May we be a people that embrace the good news of Jesus for ourselves and share it with others.